My name is Flavio Laviano, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ilya. How you doing? I've been better. Yeah, it's bad news today. We're really sad. It is. Uh, a really good friend of mine and the show um, uh, passed away this weekend. Uh, his name is Dan Neese, and if you uh, go back through the archives of the show, you'll you'll find his episode, but you won't have to, actually. We're going to uh, cut together uh, a little thing for him and uh, rerun it this week sometime. So I think uh, after this episode uh, goes live, we'll have a special sort of like, uh, you know, mini Dan Neese tribute uh, where we rerun his interview from, from several years ago. Yeah, I, I first met Dan with you at the ASC Clubhouse the year that I went with you to the ASC Awards. And uh, he was a character. He was funny. He had crazy hair. He just had a million amazing stories and just a a warm heart. And if you've watched a movie in the last 40 years, you've probably seen some of his work. Uh, Probably my favorite thing of his, and I kind of gush about it, this in the interview with him, is uh, he did Steadicam on the entire opening sequence of the Wes Craven movie Scream. And it's just some gorgeous, beautiful Steadicam work. But, you know, more, more than anything, Dan was just, he was very helpful. He was warm. He was a friendly guy. Uh, a friend of mine who's another Steadicam operator told me today that Dan helped him out and like gave him some replacement part that he needed, you know, and he didn't even know him. He's just, uh, he was kind of a light in the cinematography world, beloved by many and uh, definitely we're going to miss him. He's He, he died too young and uh, I was looking forward to seeing what else he was going to do because he was sort of moving into being a cinematographer primarily for the last several years, but you know, he, he did some amazing collaborations with David Lynch. And like I said, scream, if you look him up, he has an amazing filmography. The Hollywood reporter did a really nice sort of uh, tribute to him today. And uh, maybe we'll put a, a link to that in our uh, show notes, but really the outpouring that I've seen in the last 24, 48 hours, just on Facebook and elsewhere is wonderful tribute and shows how Dan Neese touched so many people and how uh, he really was one of the good guys. Uh, there, there's plenty of people in this town who are bad actors. They, they uh, or maybe they reach a point where they're tolerated. And it's easy, I think, to get jaded. But Dan really always uh, was very genuine, true to himself, self-effacing, and really just sort of like a, a beautiful person to, to have around you anywhere. And, so. and and may I say also, funny as hell, like yeah. a, a really funny guy, <laughs> fun to talk to. Particular sense of humor, for sure. Uh, you know, Great for, stories. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll, we'll run some more and we're going to skip doing any other sort of like uh, close focus today because really, I don't know how you follow Dan, but uh Who's on the show today? How do we how do we, how do we move forward? Yeah. Uh, you know, how do we uh, what? Who's on the show? Ham-handed segue into amazing cinematographer Flavio Labiano, who shot little movie you might have heard of. Maybe it's on your radar. A little little tiny indie film called Jungle Cruise. 
Jungle Cruise. Yeah. I, I, it doesn't ring any bells. Yeah, it's got like a couple of up and coming actors in it, like this dude named Dwayne Johnson. I think he was a wrestler or something. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I think I've heard of him once or twice. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was made for a little little indie outfit called Disney. I'm gonna drop this bit now. Um, oh but, wait, is that the one with Mary Poppins? <laughs> it is. It is. But with Flavio, uh, as soon as it came up that we could talk to him, as I always do, I was looking through his filmography, and one just jumped out of IMDb at me, and it's a movie that I've been telling people about forever and I've seen it several times and totally coincidentally happened to have watched it like two or three weeks before the interview and that's Time Crimes which is the most bonkers time travel weird thriller movie you could ever see when, is, when was that made how long ago? How uh, I that? saw it I believe at Fantastic Fest in 2008 Oh, it was 12 like years. it was like 2007, yeah. 2008. Yeah, so it's not like an ancient movie, but it, but it, you know it's it, it's been around for a while. Uh, you can definitely get it on Amazon Prime. Super nuts. I love a movie that kind of takes a time travel concept and just twists it around upon itself. But while I was talking to Flavio, he kept bringing up a movie, and I'm, I'm going to mention it now because I hadn't seen it before I did the interview. It's called The Day of the Beast that he made in Spain, and apparently it was the huge phenomenon indie film. He said it was like Pulp Fiction in Spain or in Europe, rather, that year, 1995, 1996. And I was kind of ashamed that I hadn't seen it because he seemed very excited about it. So later that night, I found it on Tubi, which is uh, it's a streaming service that's ad-supported. It has lots of movies on it, and it was on Tubi. And uh, that movie's rip shit bonkers. I, I was very excited to, <laughs> to see it. And I actually emailed him to tell him, like, thank you for recommending it. It's, it's about a priest who kind of like decodes something in the book of Revelation or in one of the books of the Bible, I guess, that says that the devil is about to have a child like right now at that time, at that point in time. And so he sets about to sin as much as he possibly can so that he can meet the devil and destroy him. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I know how you appreciate a, a real rip ship bonkers movie. And that certainly sounds like it. <laughs> it's it's pretty nuts. It's interesting to look at a movie from the 90s and have enough distance from the 90s to be like, that looks like a 90s movie. But it's really good. It's really well done. His cinematography is awesome in it. But I, I mean, like top to bottom, I was just riveted. It's one of those movies where I'm like, I have literally no idea what's going to happen next. It's so well done. So if you have Tubi, uh, definitely check it out. But anyway, uh, without further ado, let's go ahead into our interview with Flavio Labiano. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So I am here today, transcontinentally, talking from Los Angeles to Berlin to uh, Flavio Labiano, DP of Jungle Cruise. So congratulations so much for that, and thank you for making time to come talk to us. Thank you very much, yeah. So, I mean, let's start by talking about Jungle Cruise. Uh, you know, obviously Disney is going through their full catalog of theme park attractions that aren't movies and turning them into movies. A friend of mine actually is uh, currently an AD on the upcoming Haunted Mansion movie. So when I was watching the movie, I immediately felt like I was very clever for noticing the very subtle Werner Herzog nod by having a character named Gary be a conquistador and having lots of stuff happening on the river in the Amazon. So it, it felt like a, that it's sort of like somewhere between a Gary the Wrath of God and Fitzcarraldo. Did you all look at any Herzog movies as visual reference? Because, I mean, your movie has that Disney polish to it. Yeah. And, and no, you uh, know, Aguirre, uh, sorry, you know, Aguirre was a conquistador actually from the Basque country, from where I am from. You know, mm -hmm. he was a guy from 
Well, no, I, know, I know he was real, but I feel like to oh. set uh, to have a character named Agiri and also to set something on a you know, not a riverboat, but like a boat going through the river doing incredible stuff like it's impossible. Maybe, maybe I'm I crazy. Know. Am I crazy? It, it felt no, like no. A- I think you probably are right. I, I think a lot of coincidence. You know, they had to they had to come with a name from a conquistador, kind of the boss of the conquistadors. Yeah, and Agiri was actually in history. You know, was one of the you know the biggest guys and probably one of the cruelest guys they ever existed, you know, and there's this is famous story about him that when he died, the locals, the Indians just cut his head and put it in a, in a, in a, in a birch cage <laughs> and, and hang it from a tree in case he was ever, ever going to come back, you know. But no, I think there are a couple of coincidences. One, I think one is Aguirre, called Aguirre because, as I said, was one, another one, Fitzcarraldo together with Aguirre in the boat and the Amazon. So, yeah, you know, they're both... But there are two movies that you probably know that's nothing to do with each other. You know, one is, yeah, yeah. as you just said, it's a romantic, you know, romantic comedy in an exotical place. And the other one yeah, is yeah. A, story, a story of a, pretty much of a madman who was a madman. You know, Aguirre was just, was a crazy Well, in Aguirre, the Wrath of God is like, I think they didn't even have lights. Like, it's almost all shot with natural light on a 16 millimeter camera that Herzog had, uh, had stolen or something. Like, it's yeah. the story of making that movie is, is bonkers. Could not possibly be further from making a, a big movie for Disney. I can tell you the difference one to the other. One was done in the Amazons, and the other one was done in the parking lot in Atlanta. <laughs> Those are the big difference. On exterior parking lot in Atlanta, this is how we shot eighty percent of jungle books, which is hard to believe, but that's the truth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was wondering that when I was watching it because obviously there's some stuff that's VFX driven. You know, there's a lot of really amazing and gorgeous VFX in the whole movie, but I was wondering how much of it was shot in a real forest or in a real like in a in a real location. Some of it looked outrageously real. Were parts of it done on a real river? Well, the woods? first act, the whole. Town, you know, Portobello in the Amazon that was shot in Hawaii, the whole part until the boat takes off to the Amazons. Mm-hmm. So all that big first scene where you see the boat and the summer, all that stuff was built in a beautiful set that we built in, in, in Hawaii. It was a privilege to, to even design the set because we designed the set with the same orientation on the sun. Then we did the tank where we shot most of the interiors of the boat. So there was mm-hmm. no, basically, there was no, the boat just. You know, moved around in Hawaii, but all the scenes in the boat or aboard the boat were done in a tank, in the real, real tank, because it's very complex to shoot in an actual water. You know, and so we shot all the in control area. So once we leave Portobello, which is that town that that, we, that they built for the first time, then we just go into complete, you know, CG CG world. We never, we never. All of it CG, room. like like the whole. Well, all- well, you know, we, we shot, as I said, the, the big whites, yeah, it's all, mm. all done. So, I mean, we sent the crew to um, the Amazon and shot a bunch of plates, of course. Mm-hmm. And they pretty much, you know, put a boat in some of those plates, you know. But um, we shot 20% of the movie in Hawaii, in that location, and the rest all in Atlanta, yeah. Wow, wow. Now, when you're doing something that's like so VFX driven, how much, uh, say, like if, if you're doing a, a thing and we're in the boat and the sun is supposed to be in the western side, whatever, of the boat, how much input do you end up having in the way the CG is set up to match the shots that you created? Well, it's, it's pretty complex. I mean, it's just a matter of, I mean, planning and prepping, prepping, hard prepping. We were lucky because we had experience of the shallows. I don't know if you saw that movie. Mm. I did, yeah. Library. Yeah. 
So that movie was sort of a game, the whole movie on the tank. So we put mm-hmm. the tank, we put the rock, we put the bowie, we put the well. It was shot all in a big swimming pool. So we, we had to find the locations of the beach. We found the locations. We figure out, figure out how the sun got the location. Then yeah. you go to the tank, use the same sun. It's, it's pretty much like a, a lot of homework you have to do trying to match the, the morning to the evening. And just and that's why always those blue screens work so well when you can actually control the plates and, and shoot them together. Yeah. You know, most of the movies, especially big movies, people shoot the actors you know, right away, bam, bam, and then some plate unit goes and shoot the plates, and one has the sun on one side, the other one, so they always look this kind of strange, you know, especially blue screen movies, they look like video games. Mm-hmm. In, in, in our case, we were lucky enough to, to, to do the actual plates and, the, and, and match them into the, into the tank, you know. But it's just prep and prep and planning, you know, it's pretty much that. I mean, give me an idea. How long do you spend prepping and planning a movie of this complexity? Because I feel like there's probably very few scenes that don't have some VFX component to them. This one a lot. I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. we shot 90 days, probably, yeah, probably 90 or 100 days of prep we had. Because, was, as I said, it was very complex. We had to go to Hawaii. And then we have to, we have to actually build a whole tank. We have to actually, from scratch, you know, build mm-hmm. the blues, build the walls, and figure out where the sun was gonna hit. So it was, yeah, pretty complex and a lot of, a lot, a lot of prepping, you know. I'm sorry, do, were you working with like storyboards? Were you working with previs? Like what, what were the, the main tools you were leaning on to, to make sure that you could build these incredible sequences? Yeah, I mean, some of the really big effects scenes because of budgeting problems, we would do storyboards and some previs, the big effects mm-hmm. scenes, but the rest, no, the rest pretty much was shot list and planning. You have to think the fact that if you suit in the summer in Atlanta, you know, the sun is straight up. Like it's just this hard sun. I don't know if you've been yeah. in the south in Atlanta. It's just, it's impossible. I, I'm to... from Florida, so I, and I okay. know, and, and, and I've worked on several movies in Atlanta, so I, I get So it. you know how fast the sun goes up, stays yeah. up, and then comes down. It's just this hard sun. So it was, yeah, sophisticated, but you know, our crew was very solid, and a bunch of them have done already movies that big, and pirates, and so they were pretty used to to deal with those kinds of... Yeah, I mean, Atlanta is quickly getting one of the most solid crew bases in the world, I would say. Correct, correct, yes. I mean, it's probably in the winter. I've never been in the winter there, but in the summer, you know, it's, it's high. It's, you're fighting toppy, toppy, toppy sun, and the storms, they come in the afternoon, and you're fighting this southern yep. weather that you probably know better, better than Well, me. yeah, Florida's, Florida's even worse, but I, I, was, uh, I was in the art department on this indie film once that shot, I, I think it was 24 days, and I counted how much time, it, and a lot of it was exteriors. And I counted how many how many hours we lost to getting ready for the rain c- to come in, and then battening down the hatches for the rain, and then getting unpacking. And it was it was basically like two full days of of a twenty four day shoot we lost. Oh yeah, just just to dealing with rain. And every, after, every afternoon, not very every afternoon yeah. will be a storm. Every afternoon for two or three hours will be pour rain. There. Yeah, it was. But you know, yeah. when at the end do all those things. Normally you forget those things. <laughs> you yeah, always yeah. Try to, to forget. Well, yeah, stuff, I mean, but, you, know. you know, every every city has its compromises, and you know, it's not that LA doesn't. We do have generally okay weather until uh, this time of year. <laughs> it's it's like uh, supposed to be a hundred a hundred and four degrees today. So let's talk a little bit about your career leading up to this. You've done quite a lot of stuff. Not as much of it might be as familiar to a lot of uh, our American listeners, but you've been working forever and uh, going back to the early 90s. And I'm just interested to know, like, well, what was the moment 
that you realized cinematography was a track you wanted to pursue? Actually, I have to say, you know, it was very simple, you know. So I went to FI and I, I did my thesis film and I was broke. I had to make a living. <laughs> I, I went to shoot Corman movies down in Venice. Oh, so okay. So <laughs> I, so I, I somehow <laughs> seem to have missed this in your filmography because well, I, love, Asian I love hearing eh? about Corman stories. We've had a lot of Corman people on here in, over the last, over the years. So I shot Angel in Red. I did a couple of second units for a lot of friends from AFI, like Janusz Kaminski, who was doing also yeah. the same thing, and a lot of other friends, Wally, and a lot of guys who were not that we've, we've had Wally, Wally Fister on here. And I don't I remember just... if Wally first, I don't remember if Wally was on that gang or later. I don't know, it was that time. He was, but, it uh, was I think, was a contemporary. Fedam was doing one, Janusz was doing another one, and I started to do second. And then I did this one, they gave me the, finally the break, and I did this, uh, Angel in red, and then I knew from that moment that I had to do one and no more than one because the oh, people really? Who, <laughs> yeah, the people I just love hearing there. Corman stories. I mean, we've had a lot of Corman DPs. I don't know if you know Carlos Gonzalez, he he was a Corman well, I know guy, who he is. yeah. Uh, I know who he is. Uh, yeah, Mike Mickens, uh, we, we've had Wally on, like, I, I, I just Wally uh, and Janus, Janus Kaminsky, he, he was there. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, Janus is like obviously one of our uh, some somebody we, we hope to get on at some point, but yeah, I mean, like, I could just hear those stories over and over again because I, I feel like there's something a little magical about Roger Corman. There are companies like the Asylum that are making crazy low budget movies and, and spraying them all over, uh, you know, the inside of uh, Targets and Walmarts, but there's nobody like a Roger Corman who is sort of a mogul uh, of those movies and so so many just outrageously talented people you know we had ron howard on the show once like ron howard uh came out of you know his first directing opportunity was for corman and so you know to me there's there's kind of a magical halo around it even though i know y'all had like you know very little to work with and very little time and and whatever but i think unlike things like the asylum and and maybe i'll get heat for saying this i feel like corman was trying to make good movies even even if even with limited means mm-hmm and then from there, you know, I, they, I went back to Spain for, you know, something. And then one producer who used to be a camera assistant became a producer. And, and he said, oh, you have, have you made, here this project, very low budget project. And, and I said, yes, I have already one feature shot in, in Los Angeles. And what, oh, like the, I didn't tell it was Corman. <laughs> so, or then I got another job. And since then, you know, I've been very, very lucky and very, very, very lucky. And I've been doing, you know, one after the other. So I've been kind of non-stop since, since then. So, you know, I've done almost 30 features right now in my life and I'm getting more and more tired, but you know, I've been very, very lucky. <laughs> at this point too, you're like working at the, at the top, top of all the features, you know, making stuff like Jungle Cruise. Well, I don't live in LA anymore. I used to live in LA and then I moved out of LA and that changes completely your career, you know, once you moved out from LA, you know. How so? Well, you know, I, I used to live in LA after that, you know, I lived for years there and I was working but at one point, you know, I, I had, you know, I, I grew up family, I had a kid and I saw the whole thing and I just thought that I should go back to, to Spain. So I just left, mm-hmm. left Los Angeles and went back to Spain. I mean, I'm not saying that there was a big mistake, but I'm saying that, you know, it's not so easy to, to be, as you said, on the big projects with, with the young leaf in, in Los Angeles or, or less in the US. But, but yeah, again, you know, I've been, been very lucky. So. I'm I'm curious about this too because um, 
I remember when I lived in, in Florida, somebody would be like, oh, they brought in this DP from L.A. And everybody would be like, ooh. And then after you live in L.A., you're like, you know, throw a rock and you're, you you might hit a DP. You know, it, it doesn't it, like being a DP from L.A. doesn't mean that much. But when you go back to Spain and you've been working out here and you've been working on bigger stuff, does does that make you more in demand in Spain or in, in you know, whatever parts of Europe you have access to? Not really. No, I once I left Spain for so many years and I became, yeah, they sometimes they call me Spain, but it's not, not usual, you know, not usual. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, the movies have been made in Spain right now after these two big crises that happens in these last years. They're very, 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 very low budget movies. And, yeah. and you know, and then they don't, you don't have the tools, you don't have the time. It's all, you know, it's a different way of, of completely approach. Of the yeah, movie, yeah. You know? So I think the first time I ever noticed your work was in a movie that we had talked about very briefly off mic beforehand, and that was Perdita Durango, which came out in the late 90s, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know if that was, I mean, you know, you, you had your uh, uh, your Corman movie, but was that sort of like the first, uh, like that no, was... No, no, no. No. So as I said, you know, I, I did a movie in Los Angeles for Corman, then I went to Spain, moved back to Spain uh, one time because I got this other movie. Then in Spain, I started making movies like I did three movies and then Alex de la Iglesia which is a Spanish director I don't know mm. if you know him Alex de la Iglesia he did this movie called The Day of the Beast I don't know if you ever saw that movie I have n- I, I know of it but I have not seen it oh, alright so that movie was you know our you know he, we didn't know each other he met me I'm doing this movie which you know it's a low budget movie it's about a devil and, you know a priest and a devil it was a great you know and then we, we did the movie and that movie you know became a huge success for him and for me for everybody and from their own both careers you know we just and then we did so that was that was the springboard yeah that was like if you sued Pulp, Pulp Fiction or something like this in, in Spain in, in LA like something like that, that yeah big, you know yeah, it was a huge movie. I, I should recommend you to see it because you're going to like it for sure. You know, it's I'm a, a huge horror that, fan, and so your description already makes me. Interested. Yeah, it's about I'm, I'm a priest. Gonna... It's about a priest who you know who finds out that they know that in three days the world is going to finish, and then he has to find the devil. It's, it's one of those very very comic comedy action movie and horror movie. Oh, cool. Just a, a genre like. And yeah, and with Alex, I started to do movies, and then you know, this big producer bought the rights for the Garbari Gifford novel *Perita Durango*, and then they, we all came to the U.S. and Mexico, and it was a Spanish production, you know, a big production shot in, in those two countries. So it was a lot of with Javier Bardem was starring. Yeah, yeah. And James James Gadon. I think that might be the first thing I ever noticed him in too. Like that was yeah, yeah, yeah really yeah. interesting. Uh, I really movie. recommend you to see the Day of the Beast if you can, man, because it's, I just, will track that down. They just um, did a whole remastering. In LA oh really? And, yeah, and it's pretty yeah pretty fun. Yeah, it's a fun movie to watch. Now, when when you're going back and remastering something like that, do you ever find yourself noticing something in the footage that you had never noticed before because you're now <laughs> able to easily look at it in a higher oh, resolution yeah. than you were back then? Well, yeah, it's very hard to see these movies. I mean, it's very hard for me to see them because, you know, you see all the mistakes and you see these, <laughs> you see these things that you tried and you didn't success. And, you know, I, I, you know, I have my own theory about being a cinematographer. I really don't consider myself, I don't think they consider anybody like an, an artist with a big A. Like, I, I read all these bullshit interviews about, you know, the art and, the, and every time they interview one comes out with big old Renaissance painters and... I don't think it has nothing to do with that cinematography. I think it's a craft. It's a craft that you yeah. learn. And like any other craft, you learn by, you know, by mistake, a try and risk a mistake. And you try to, to get, you know, in your way. 
but not more than a shoemaker, you know, who runs how to do the double knot and to tie it on, and then the, the shoe doesn't break. So cinematography is basically that. You go with this <laughs> thing like, all right, we're going to try this, and oh my God, it didn't come out. And then when it comes out, it's a lot of successful. So that's how I, I think it's considered a craft, you know, a craft that you're learning with the years. Yeah, yeah. So when you see all those early movies, you were like, oh my God, why did I do that? Why did I put the, why did I put the, why did I put the camera there, you know? Why did I get all those... <laughs> <laughs> All those things like, oh, I know so much now, I would have done it, you know, in two shots instead of 16, that kind of stuff, you know, that you learn yeah. with with the years, you know. So when you talk about like perfect camera placement, this brings me into one of your movies that I most wanted to talk about, and that's Time Crimes, which I think I saw at Fantastic Fest in 2008. And then I thought it was awesome and got it on DVD and showed it to my wife and some of my friends. And, you know, I'd seen it a bunch of times. And then totally coincidentally, before I even knew I was interviewing you, I, I, I stumbled across it on Amazon Prime and watched it a few weeks ago. And uh, that movie really holds up. But it speaks about what you're talking about, because that movie is so much about seeing exactly only what you need to see at every given moment. For people who haven't seen it, it's a very pared down time travel story about kind of this middle-aged man who gets sucked into this time travel. I don't even know, like he travels back in time and doesn't even realize that he's traveled back in time and has to do all these crazy things to get himself to do the right thing in the past. And uh, Well, that's all, yeah, I mean, that's all Nacho. I don't know if you know Nacho Villarondo, the director. I don't know if you yeah. know him. But, uh, I mean, I don't personally know him, but I know Well, yeah, but that's a, you know, that's a... Brilliant, brilliant mind. So much of it is is about restricting the main character and the audience's point of view right down to the fact that the main character is looking at things through binoculars. So you're just seeing what he sees through the binoculars a lot. And, uh, you know, kind of what you're what you were saying earlier about, like, finding the perfect place for the camera. It's like also finding the perfect place where, you know, if the camera was 10 feet to the side, he would see something that would give away the story later. The more you see the movies subjectively, especially some kind of movies, then the more the audience, the more you hook up the audience, you know, you see everything through someone's point of view, then you can grab the audience and just make them whatever you want, you know. Well, and uh, so it was, you know, maybe a few years later when you shot Unknown, but like, I feel like, I mean, you've obviously done some other action-y stuff, but, you know, getting into the full-on Liam Neeson mode and you, you shot a couple of Liam Neeson action movies, like that, that's almost a genre into itself. And when I was looking up your work, I came across kind of a side-by-side -side comparison uh, that maybe we can link in our show notes that was showing like the shots in the movie and then you shooting them at the same, uh, like it was like a split screen. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, oh, no. I haven't seen that. If, if you look, what is that? If, uh, I, I want to say it was from Unknown. No, I'm sorry. It was from Nonstop. If you Google your name and cinematography, you will find this video. Um, it, it was really interesting. It looked, it looked like, I don't know, we don't really do DVD extras anymore, but it looked like something that you would have as a DVD extra. It was really interesting just to kind of see those behind the scenes things. But like, you know, uh, probably around whatever, 10 years ago, Liam Neeson, probably starting with Taken, you know, Liam Neeson becomes sort of a, a an action, a one man action franchise. Like you, ex you have a certain expectation. Mm -hmm. Um, but I feel like in those Liam Neeson kind of movies, they don't ha you don't have all the money in the world, but it's just like good old fashioned craft to kind of suck you in and, and hold your attention. Yeah, it's what Hitchcock did for years. You know, you have, yeah. it's, all, it's all psychological in your mind. And you, you watch one of those Hitchcock movies and it's just that, you know, it's like it's just these thrillers with characters, with psychology. It's, it's just the whole thing. It's a genre in itself, you know, and I don't know, maybe it's not popular anymore, but it's, I, I, I kind of like them. I like them a lot. It was a golden age. 
they did them very well. Oh, you yeah. Thrillers, you know. But now it's all, you know, Allah is all, you know, fireworks or it's two people talking in an apartment, you know, on the kind of wide wall, you know. But, so. but again, I go back to Time Crimes, which is a movie that I, I, I dare anyone listening to me to like go to Amazon Prime, watch if you have it, you know, start watching Time Crimes and tell me it doesn't suck you in in the first five minutes and you're going to be wondering until the last second of the movie what the hell is yeah. going on not in a bad way in it like no, it's just no. it's just such a such an intriguing mystery kind of wrapped in another mystery wrapped in another mystery it's it's uh it's, it's so much fun well i've taken enough of your time um oh, it's, it's all right man it's all right so flavia thank you so much for coming on uh the show everybody if you haven't already checked out jungle cruise please go check out jungle cruise it's it's amazing and uh, also just take my advice Watch Time Crimes. It's uh, it, it's definitely worth seeing. It's it's an amazing an amazing scaled down thriller with science fiction elements. So thank you uh, again, Flavia. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you. All right. So that was Flavio Labiano. Congratulations on all of the success of Jungle Cruise. And uh, he was he couldn't tell me what it was, but while I was interviewing him, he was in Berlin shooting some uh, some exciting new movie. So I, I'm sure we'll find out shortly. And now, short ends. So, uh, Ilya, it is that time for our international award-winning segment, Short Ends. Yes. It, it won an award at World Fest Houston. Let's not talk about it. Um, <laughs> okay, we won't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is your uh, pet obsession this week? Oh, well, it almost sounds like an ad for Aperture because I got to talk about something new that Aperture is doing, but they're a really innovative company and they came out with this really cool light I've talked about it on the show a couple of times called the 600D. It's a 600 watt, extremely bright light, and uh, they're updating it. And actually today, the show the show that's dropping today, that the, the formal announcement's being made, but they're having a new version of this light come out called the 600X. And uh, they've already teased it a little bit, but it is a 600D that is now bicolor. So it's not just daylight. It's also tungsten flavor of white. Sweet. And you can adjust anywhere in the middle. So a 600 watts, but I'm going to guess it's probably like 300 watts of tungsten, 300 watts of daylight. So it's kind of like having uh, two 300 lights kind of together as one. And, uh, I, you know, I think that I guess at 4,300, then it's probably going to be very, very bright, which would be somewhere in the middle. But it's getting uh, the full typical aperture launch treatment uh, tomorrow or today as you're as you're hearing this. And uh, it'll be on the Hot Rod Cameras website and it'll be probably all over the Internet. But it's going to be, you know, one of the brightest, smallest, least expensive bicolor lights out there. And it's going to be compatible with all the usual uh, aperture stuff. And so, um, yeah, I think it's going to be a big deal. We have a ton of 600Ds that we've been been selling lately. But uh, I think that there's some people now who are going to say, ah, give me that, that 600X. And uh, the, the one thing, the one thing that's going to drive a few people crazy is it's not quite ready to ship. It's still probably going to be a couple of months before that mm. really starts to, to roll out there. Interesting, interesting. Well, that's that's still cool, though. Yeah, it's cool. It's it's going to be really good light, and I think that we will be talking about it as it gets closer into a, a thing. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, I had a little bit of inside information about it, just a tiny bit. As a dealer, they give us a little bit of a heads up, saying, "Hey, just just so you're aware, uh, they want us to be able to hit the ground running and be able to tell people because after they make the, that announcement tomorrow." I expect a bunch of people are going to call and say, hey, remember that 600D I wanted? Well, now I want a 600X. So, <laughs> uh, not everyone. Some people will still want the higher horsepower, so to speak, of the 600D, and they're not really too concerned about changing colors. But for some people out there, it's going to be a, a real boon. They're going to really like it. So, so Ben, what's your uh, 
pet obsession on here our award internationally award-winning segment short ends <laughs> um uh firstly i want to do a very quick follow-up on last week's short end which was the podcast uh the plot thickens about the making of bonfire of the vanities and the devil's candy and all that stuff mm-hmm. so after listening to the, the whole podcast hasn't dropped i think there's one or two more episodes yet to come uh but i i was like I wonder where I, I wonder if I can watch Bonfire of the Vanities because I saw it in the theater. I remember literally nothing about it. I don't. I didn't. I, I you, you could have put a gun to my head before I listened to the podcast, and I couldn't have told you who was in it. I knew nothing. I, I wouldn't have remembered that De Palma directed it. I wouldn't have remembered Tom Hanks, uh, Melanie Griffith, or uh, or Bruce Willis. And uh, anyway, so uh, it's on HBO Max, and I watched it. And uh, here's the crazy thing: it's not that bad. You liked it now. It's good. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to say I like it. I, I feel like a lot of the racial politics are horrifically out of step with mm. with today, like way out of step. Like people would be very mad about it, about uh, specifically the portrayal of African-Americans in that movie. It's kind of I mean, I understand that the movie itself is kind of a cartoon, but the African-American portrayal is extra cartoonish a lot of times. And supposedly they changed the judge from a white guy to Morgan Freeman to kind of soften the racialness of it, because the judge is sort of the Jiminy Cricket, if you will, of the entire movie. Like he's Hmm. he's definitely the conscience of the movie. But uh, and, and Bruce Willis is weird casting in it. But it reminded me that Bruce Willis used to be like a gifted comedy guy. All right, let me interrupt you just one second here, Ben. Um, your your short end this week is your short end from last week? No, okay. no, I was just doing a quick follow-up. Oh, I was just okay, doing a quick okay. follow-up because... Because this isn't quick anymore. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So this was almost my short end last week, and I, and, and I decided to go with uh, with the plot thickens. But I think this is extra cool, and people should check it out. Um, and, and I don't have a release date on it yet, but Phil Tippett, stop-motion genius phil tippett worked on the star wars movies he invented a kind of stop motion called go motion that was used in a movie called dragon slayer that enabled them to create a blur frame when they took the shot so that it made the motion look more natural and if you don't believe me go on amazon prime and watch dragon slayer the dragon effects in that i will put them against game of thrones i'll put them against modern stuff whoa it's so good and he was supposed to do stop motion dinosaurs for jurassic park when uh, the whole computer revolution kind of ripped the rug out from under him but he still remained as like a as a supervisor so for 30 years Phil Tippett has been noodling around with a film called Mad God. And and you can now see the trailer for Mad God. It's been finished. And supposedly, like, at his studio, which I think is in Northern California, he had started and stopped and started and stopped. And some of the younger people who were working with him discovered what he did and kind of went in and helped him finish it. And it's a feature. I think it was at Cannes this year. I could be wrong about that. But go watch the trailer for it. He's definitely a one of a kind artist. He hasn't really directed that many things. I think this is like his third or fourth directing credit. But if you look him up, you know, again, he worked on the Star Wars movies and the Indiana Jones movies and Dragon Slayer. Like I remember I was a young kid when I saw Dragon Slayer, but I remember just being blown away because I was a fan of of uh, stop motion. And my father's friend, who I've actually talked about on the podcast when he passed away, but last year, uh, Bobo Goldberg explained Go Motion to me, and he was my filmmaking uh, mentor as a, as a young kid, and he explained what Go Motion was, and it was just like whoa, because they would put I guess like a servo or robot arm or something in there, and then do a longer exposure and move move the stuff, and it makes the motion look extraordinarily natural. Um, 
And oh, I've seen Dragon Slayer. I'm looking at the cover art right now. That was totally at the video store I worked at. Yeah, Dragon Slayer is a really interesting kind of medieval movie. There, there were a bunch of uh, medieval-ish movies that were very popular around that time. Beastmaster and the Sword and the Sorcerer. And there, there were several. It was kind of a, a trend. And Dragon Slayer, I think, kind of tanked. But it's one of those movies that people remember fondly. And I watched it probably about two or three years ago. And, it was, and it's shocking how good the effects hold up. I feel like CGI effects often don't age well. And stuff like stop motion always feels like it did the day that you saw it. Because the technology doesn't really change. So when you watch a movie like that where it's basically stop motion. But they've added several wrinkles to it to make it more fluid and more natural looking. It's it's pretty astonishing. Anyway, but but eighty four percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I I love the movie, but I'm just excited to see Mad God. I've been hearing about Mad God. I, I think I probably for the first time heard about it ten years ago, and uh, it's something that I'm very very much looking forward to seeing released and seeing somehow if I can see it on the big screen. It sounds awesome. Uh, I gotta go check out this trailer now. So that sounds really cool. Do it. So Ilya, uh, who do we need to thank this week? Oh, let's thank Ben Katz. Ben Katz, thank you for editing us. Good hustle this week, too. Oh, my God. We threw it all at you at the last minute. Oh, don't wait. There's more. <laughs> oh, that's true. Uh, all right. Let's thank uh, Kay Zalatrachi. Kay's, who uh, surprisingly is probably listening to this right yeah, now. Yeah, listening to us. Uh, Hi, Kay's. Hanging on every word. Yeah. How, how's it going? <laughs> and last but definitely not least, uh, Alana Cody, our intrepid producer, who uh, just today even had me at a screening of a movie with a cinematographer who is, uh, I, I mean, I wasn't at the screening with the cinematographer. The movie was shot by an outrageously legendary cinematographer who's been doing stuff uh, most of my life. And I cannot wait to talk to this person. It's a, a fascinating, I, I, I'm not going to blow it. I'm not going to talk about it yet. Yeah, I really thought you were about to. I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to. All right. Well, uh, uh, mostly because I don't know if there's an embargo on that screening. Mm, yeah, I don't know. There could be. Might, might, might be. So anyway, uh, that is it. Ilya, where can people find you online if they're looking for you? Uh, they can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com, and uh, the, all the social type of stuff. I'm, I'm usually there. There's only a couple of Ilya Friedmans out there, and uh, they're mostly me. There's a, a surprising number of Ben Rocks, actually, and I've befriended at least one of them. They don't go by Benji or Ben. No, no, there, or, they, yeah. there's, there's at least that I know of two other Ben Rocks floating around in America, and one of them uh, is uh, a D&D uh, dungeon master, and he's up in Washington State. And, and he's uh, like 10 years younger than me, but has a kid about my son's age. Oh, all right. Yeah. You guys should have a Ben Rock convention. I've thought about having a Ben Rock convention. The, the, we'd have to like get name tags with our middle names on them. Probably. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> anyway, so uh, that about does it for us, and we will see you very soon because we're about to uh, release the re-release the Dan Neese episode. But we will see you next week with a totally new episode. Yeah. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.